Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts, Lucy Davis. I'm Benjamin Halden. So we've got a very special guest with us again today. And I think this intro could go on for a very, very, very <laughs> long time. Start? So we'll we'll dive into the podcast and, and pick Nick's brain instead. But not only has he ran around the whole of the UK, he's also run around every country in the world. What a marathon in every country. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Guys, literally. <laughs> Mr. Oh Nick Butter, thank you very much for your time today because we know you're a very busy man. So thank you for jumping on. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's been a while since we, we chatted all things running the world. So yeah, looking forward to it. I appreciate it. One of the things we're going to say on the way down here, I was speaking to Lucy, I was actually feeling great yesterday because we did a half marathon in the morning mm. and then we come down and sat, sat with you today and it's kind of <laughs> deflated my ego a little bit. Well, I don't know about that. You've done more miles than me recently. So <laughs> you win, really. Well, is, how long have you sort of taken away from running? Because obviously we'll, we'll dive into yeah. the, the juice of the podcast. But Last, what was the last day? The last day was the 22nd of August I ran uh, properly, 40-odd well, miles. Um, but after that, I've just done a few miles every day. That doesn't count. Right? Yeah, <laughs> few, a few four or five miles every day just keeps my leg ticking over. It keeps my brain happy as well. Um, but no, I've not, it's it, basically a month. That was the plan to finish the last trip, which we'll obviously talk about and mm-hmm. then have a month off and then get back into training. Cause I needed to stop running <laughs> from both a mental and a physical, M- mostly physical, mm-hmm. like mental. I, I kind of need to do a little bit more, keep, keep going with it. Mm-hmm. But, um, physical, I just lost so much body fat and so much weight and it was just painful to walk on my feet cause they were so just bony. Um, and that's a good sign to yeah. maybe stop running Take a some bit. Time yeah. Off. yeah. Oh so you only finished the run around the, the UK or Britain. Yeah. The 22nd of August, was it? Yeah, 22nd of August. We started on the 17th of April um, with the plan to do two marathons a day, every day for 100 days. And obviously there was lots of injuries, which we can we can talk yeah. about. Yeah. Um, but I finished a bit late. We did it in 128 days, finishing on the yeah on the 22nd of, uh, of August. Um, back around in, in St. Austin in Cornwall. So... I'm, it feels like a lifetime ago, but because I can't remember so much of it mm-hmm. because it was just a blur, you know, running for 12 hours every day, trying to eat 8,000 calories every day and then not doing anything else other than running because there's no time. Um, and then all of a sudden you stop. So your world is just turned upside down and you don't know what to do. And the days feel like weeks and you're like, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's like six o'clock in the evening and it's like seven o'clock in the morning. I'm and not no exaggerating. There's no, no, exactly. It's just completely gone so so basically you're doing a food you're doing a full food challenge every single day as well as trying to get that many calories yeah. in to feel like surely that in itself must be a challenge to run with that much food in your gi track and your gut um i'm quite good at it now because i'm so used to it but i struggle just to to actually take in the calories mm-hmm. because i'll try and eat every couple of miles like just something, no matter what it is. And we can talk about exactly what I eat, which is mm. generally not very good. Um, but because I'm doing so much, most of the, the sugar that I'm eating is is not getting to fat or just yeah. sitting in my body. It's just being used and burned off. But, you know, if I have a, I don't know, a Belgian bun or a pasty or whatever it is, then that's still not very like decent calories and it takes you a while to eat it remember it's like the amount yeah. of time I'm actually chewing for and running and then all of a sudden I finish the day and I'm like oh, I've only only done 5,000 calories um, which is a lot but it's still not enough yeah. and I still keep losing weight so um, it's a bit mentally kind of tough to do that because you think oh yeah I've had a good day today I've had lots of food I've got back I've maybe finished a bit earlier so mm-hmm. I can have some even more food in the evening uh, and then you realise you weigh yourself two or three days I weigh myself every morning 
And obviously, as you know, you don't really see the immediate weight loss yeah. day on day. So three or four days later, I've still lost weight. And, you know, I've never went up at all throughout those hundred days. Never, ever. Really? It was literally just a downward spiral for the whole like, three and a half months. Yeah. So over that period of time, how much weight did you, so like your starting weight, your Yeah, so it started at just under 72 kilos. So I think it was 71 and a bit. So, yeah, 71.6 or something kilos. And then I finished on 58. So that's quite, I'm just under six foot. So it's You're not a small guy either. Super light. Yes. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm just 64 a kilos. Skeleton. Yeah. Oh, wow. A little bit more muscle. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, so can you tell him to watch out for there. tapping on the mic stand? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that shot me then. <laughs> um, it was like uh, the, the, voice, voice the, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I think before we jump into the rest of it as well, Nick, t- tell us why. Mm. Why run Britain or why yeah. run? Why run Britain? Why run Britain? Um, it was two things. Number one, I wanted to do something to celebrate us coming out of lockdown. And as you probably recall, during the first lockdown, the second lockdown, every lockdown that we've had, running was such a focus because it's the only thing people could do. Mm-hmm. But we were still running on our own or like two or three or four meters away from somebody. And it wasn't really the running that everybody knew. And so I wanted to do something to celebrate the community aspect of getting back to being able to run with people and mm-hmm. just being free again. And Britain came out of that lockdown, the final lockdown on, or the beginning of that lockdown eased on the April, April the 15th. So we started on April 17th because we could then run with people again. Um, but the real reason that Run Britain was dreamt up was because I couldn't go and do so many of the other things that we planned. We finished doing Running the World and then the book came out, I had my tour, COVID hit, and then we planned to do uh, north to south of Malawi. And then we also planned to do north to south of New Zealand. And we also also planned to do a circumnavigation of Iceland. All of those things were supposed to have already happened and they haven't happened because of COVID. And I was just getting sick of going, right, let's do this. And then waiting for the date to come around and like checking in with the government. Unfortunately, I've got really great friends, good contacts. And Mm -hmm. I was really trying to find out what was going to happen. Spoke with the New Zealand government to see what I could and couldn't do. And also there's the aspect of, let's say I could technically get into New Zealand. Should I be running north to south of a country during a pandemic? Mm. And I was like, maybe mm. not. Um, and so we decided, right, let's just plan something so when we do come out of lockdown, we can do it. And then three weeks after we dreamt the idea up, I was running around Britain. So it was literally three weeks to three weeks from the thinking about running around the country to then doing it. Hence why I got lots of injuries. We did it. When you were, so you said, there was other people. Hmm. Did you do some of the running and the distance with other people? Were they joining you yeah. around Yeah, Britain? around Britain. Yeah, exactly. That was the best bit. And I think That's everybody wonderful. knows running as a... Well, I think maybe not now. Maybe COVID's taught us that. But I think a lot of people assume running as an individual sport. And it's, it's kind of not because you have A, social media. So mm. everybody shares what they're doing on Strava or Instagram or whatever. But you also have running clubs. You have hundreds of people that you know in that world of sport, just like you guys know. And so being able to run with people again was very special. So we had, I think it was just under 3,000 people I ran with in the end around really? Britain, which was just so good. Kids wow. and um, lovely groups of people and a lot of people that didn't want to run, but just came out and wanted to have a little bit of time to chat or to sign a book. And um, it was really special. Um, yeah. There was definitely months where literally months of that journey. I'm thinking about Scotland when there wasn't many people around because the weather wasn't very good. <laughs> just in hills on um, your own. <laughs> yeah. 
a direct correlation with if it's sunny, lots of runners. Yeah. If it's not, not so many. It's uh, it's it's great what running can do though. We have only been running for the past few months, haven't we? Because we've been very much just into resistance training for the past couple of years, and that's where we've always positioned ourselves. But we are doing a charity event on the 30th of October for breast cancer now with loads of our members. Um, what's, what's the distance? So it's just 10k. So there's nothing okay. as, as, as ludicrous oh, yes, as, as, wild, as wild as the world just yet. But um, so we're getting a load of members together to do that. And people who have never ran before and people who never would have thought of running before and have taken up and loved it. Yeah. And and that's the crazy thing because they potentially never would have got into it unless yeah, they had yeah. someone to in, inspire them to do it. And it, it's it's weird because ever since quitting sport years ago, I've never massively been into running. But it is a very different feeling from mm. what I get from finishing a lift to finishing a run. And I think especially for me, because I can combine the two, it's it's yeah. a it's a it's a great feeling of getting that that runner's high sometimes. Yeah. But I'm guessing well, I'm not guessing, I'm sure there were <laughs> days where you were running on that around Britain where it was like, I'm not I'm not getting the high anymore. It's it's probably really difficult to to drag yourself up and, and, and get through those days. How, how and when did that start kind of kicking in? Where were the, I suppose, the, the, the toughest points or were there many of them? Many of them, yeah. yes. There were many of them. And yeah, so the, I suppose there's two aspects, two ways of looking at it. The runner's high, I guess, is maybe if you finished a race, you finish a marathon, you feel great mm-hmm. and you get the medal and you're sweaty and you walk back to your hotel or walk back to your family and you get that buzz. I haven't had that kind of buzz for quite some years because the long distance stuff that I'm doing, you kind of get the runner's high a little bit during, but mostly it kind of just builds in the days and weeks and months afterwards. So mm-hmm. I'm ex- still experiencing such a high from doing Running the World so many years ago. But because it was so big, like it lasts for longer, yeah. kind of. Um, and so Run Britain was a big mix of that second degree fun. So you know you're going to enjoy it when you've finished. Um, but I had lots of problems. So we, we started on April the 17th. Um, and again, 52 0.4 miles every day. That's the plan. And around the coast, it's pretty hilly. So we did something like three ascents of Everest over the first week. It was really? just ridiculous. Um, just horrible hills. We started in St. Austell down in Cornwall. And I then started to have lots of knee trouble, Achilles trouble. Um, and my meniscus in my right knee basically just flipped. Uh, and you can't. Mid run. Yeah, yeah you, whilst running, it wasn't. It uh, no, exactly. <laughs> and I didn't just feel something go; it was just so painful. Oh. And then I had lots of painkillers, and uh, and ultimately I couldn't then then walk. Um, so that was the first. Um, saw a physio, really great physio called Tim, who was the guy who did uh, Eddie, Eddie Izzard's physio on his his runs, mm-hmm. and so he really knew what was going yeah. what was going on. And importantly, he was a physio that knew not to tell me to rest because I can't rest. We're in this mission; we have to carry on. Yeah. I always say that my only mission, my only job in life, in my challenges is just to keep going. And so if a physio tells me, like, you've got to rest, then it's just a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know I know, I should rest. <laughs> they know I should rest. But if, if you can't, then you just keep going. So I had two days off. Um, and in honesty, I was an absolute wreck. Uh, I've got this photo of me coming in at um, so I was supposed to be finishing, we're starting about six o'clock in the morning most days, I'm supposed to be finishing within 12 hours, so mm-hmm. six in the evening, then maybe an hour for some food and then get to bed before eight, so then I can have a long sleep. Mm-hmm. And obviously with restless legs and all the lactic acid build up, you don't get a very good sleep yeah. for a while. Um, and so that day, I didn't finish at six in the evening, I finished at half past one the following morning, 
because I was just shot away. I was running for 19 hours, hobbling, crutches, sticks. Physios were coming out to me in the middle of the night. Um, and then I was down on, in Bournemouth on the south coast. And my brother is a nurse in Bournemouth. And he came out and saw me. And I think he was planning to see me as a brother. Yeah. But then he kind of saw me as a nurse <laughs> because I was hallucinating. <laughs> I really was. I really was. And I've got a heart problem and he knows a heart problem because we both have it. And uh, he was making sure that I wasn't going to, I was really faint as well. I was hallucinating. I saw this lion on the beach. Um, I'm still writing the book about it at the moment and just writing the description of, I see it so vividly still. Complete lion. I know, complete hallucination. Complete hallucination. I was just absolutely out yeah. of it. What, um, what, what is that due to there? Just severe exhaustion and dehydration and none of your brain being able to cope with what you're doing. And like, it's the kind of thing where I suppose you need to keep yourself standing upright and all of your energy is going to make sure you're putting one foot in front of the other and everything else just goes a little bit wobbly. That's how, how I kind of how feel. How real it. does that feel though, when, you're, when you're seeing that hallucination? How real? Because I've heard oh. Courtney Dewater talk about yeah. Things before where she'd hallucinated and she'd saw things when she was... Cello player. Yeah, yeah exactly. Weird things that you think, yeah. why on earth am I thinking it? And it was completely vivid. I still see it so clearly oh now. It had one big ear. As you look at it, it's his left ear, big triangular ear, um, and just staring at me from the beach with nothing like just the, the blackness of the sky in the background. And, uh, and I said to my brother, who was walking with me, because at that point I was virtually like just virtually standing still yeah. I was kind of shuffling forward on my poles um and I said Chris can you see the lion can you see the lion oh and he God. just gave me that brotherly smirk of you idiot <laughs> he just <laughs> finished a 12-hour shift and he was fine and I'm this I'm shot away right, right trying to hobble along a beach but um anyway we got back and they shoved me in the in the bath for the first time of the trip and I've got this brilliant photo of me and I look like I had about 40 pints. I look absolutely <laughs> gone. Um, and bearing in mind, I don't drink. This photo is brilliant because it does look like I've been drinking. We'll pop it on the screen, Yeah, Carl. pop it yeah, on the screen. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, just completely phased. And I don't remember it at all um, until I've seen the photo. Uh, anyway, we had a couple of days off, got back to it. Um, and then the rest of the injuries and things followed. And by the end of the trip, I'd broken two bones in my right tibia. I'd torn Achilles, torn my hamstring. Uh, pulled pulled virtually all of the muscles you can in your legs apart from my right hamstring. And these are things that you can't just easily get over. So I was literally crying probably for three, three and a half weeks straight every day, just of pain. What, what injury like, was that mainly due to? Mo the, the, the pain in the, the, why I was crying was mostly because of my broken tibia. Um, because I was, as I'm sure you know, you don't want to take too much painkillers because you then have no idea how much damage you're doing yeah. um so i was kind of staying there i was only taking like one paracetamol and one ibuprofen every four hours and that's still a lot but it's still enough to keep your understanding of what your pain's doing and so i was in a lot of pain and i thought well let's just keep going and after those three and a half weeks when we were on day 50 day 56 something like that it eventually got a little bit better and I could eventually put more weight on it. I could say goodbye to the crutches and I could start actually making some good progress again. So, um, and the interesting thing about the break, this happened on day 33 in Norfolk and I was convinced there was a bone broken because I'd had the feeling before when I did another trip, which was the north to south of Italy in lockdown one. Um, and that was on my other leg, my, my bottom of my tibia, just above the ankle. Yeah. And, uh, 
and I went to the hospital and they said, the good news is that we've discovered an extra bone in your leg, but the bad news is that that bone is also fractured. <laughs> so oh my I was gosh. like, oh, this That's is strange. Um, so yeah, I've got this kind of weird bone where you, you said it was um, very rare, but it's similar to like what a ballerina would have because they've done so much on their yeah. toes. Um, and I don't know if I've got it in my other leg. I'm going to pay to get an, I, an MRI done and have a look at my legs. Was that just due to repetition, 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 repetition? Not ever? just repetition, but bad nutrition, bad form, repetition, not enough muscle to keep that muscle next to the bone. Because ultimately when your muscle pulls away from your bone, because it's not strong enough, yeah. you then just have a bone standing up on its own and then, then pounding it and it just fractures. Um, so. Basically, I need to get better at running, eat better, do more training. And, and that's ultimately what I've decided to do in this period and into next year is to consolidate and take a leaf out of your book and just get a bit stronger <laughs> because I'm fed up of every trip I do, having to so suffer for so long because of a broken bone. Do you um, think that would happen to everyone, though? Like if I did, <laughs> I will, <laughs> went off and ran around Britain, yeah. surely I would break bones and um maybe not i think everybody's different i think that's the thing i don't know you might you might tear your achilles yeah. you could pull a muscle in your shoulder and seriously anything like if you're not used to doing oh, that God, running, I've, I've had some painful upper body yeah. experiences running because i run like this but that's the thing if you're used to lifting <laughs> yeah and i'm not then you might have different injuries to me i would mm. i would probably say you're more likely to get different in, different injuries yeah. to me because we've completely different training. Yeah, you've got more muscle and weight up top, so maybe you get an injury quicker, but maybe you overcome it quicker. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This I have no idea. Um, so hence, oh, yeah, so, isn't it? Yeah. was that was that the worst injury you experienced on the the Britain tip? Then probably the the tip. Yeah, yeah, to be a, I think so. But then a culmination of lots of pain. Um, I, it's really hard to describe, but. Imagine running on like the backs of your hands just with your bones hitting the concrete. That's how my feet felt at the end. And that isn't catastrophic injury. It's just painful every day. Mm. And that makes the slightly not so enjoyable moments very unenjoyable. Yeah. And you know when you're waking up in the dark and getting out early and nobody else is around and you're having to navigate or your phone runs out of battery and all of these, and you're obviously sleep deprived and lacking food. And then you have this extra bit of pain in your feet. You start to really curse the fact you haven't eaten properly and you haven't got enough fat on your, the, the soles of your feet, um, which I had no idea was going to happen at the beginning. Um, you'd, but, ne you'd never, wouldn't even cross your mind. Nah. It's not something thinking, oh gosh, my skin on my feet is very thin. No, I know. It's weird, you, isn't it? You would yeah. never even comprehend and that. And even if you do, it's like, oh, well, it's not going to cause me that much trouble. No, no, yeah, completely. But it was really painful. So I think that was the, the longest pain I had. But the, the tibia was certainly the most severe and it was just, just made me miserable. You know, you, you, you get up and you, you know you're going to do 12 hours on your feet again. And you know you're going to do it again the next day. And if you're slower in that day, you get back later. It means you have less sleep. Yeah. So it's like this it's vicious circle effect, yeah. of, of just completely. But... I've learned that my brain and my mind is definitely stronger than my body. And now it's time to work on my body so you can stop letting me down. <laughs> I think the mindset thing, well, your mindset must be a level above the average human because you're running for 12 hours a day for over 100 days. Do you think, how did you get that? Where did that mm. come from, tapping into that extra? Because people always say there's a physical limit. Yeah. And then like the next 50% is 
mindset. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's all kind of relative to yourself. So I, I think you're right. I think I probably do back myself to have a pretty strong mind, but then I might actually not. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Somebody else might be able to do what I've just done and do it a lot more easily without the pain, without the suffering and get there quicker. It's just maybe they haven't done it yet. So it's really difficult to you're very humble. Oh, no, it's a, it's, I, I know. I know. I know. Coming from though, because I think there's all we discussed this before. There's always another fucking freak who's hmm. going to be willing to to do something. There. Yeah. But it's just it's just whether they've, I suppose, got the bollocks to then put themselves yeah in that in that position to to do it and and take that. There's, there's certainly a line. There's certainly a line of doing an expedition, whether it's going to the poles or whether it's a long swimming challenge, whatever the, if, if it's a physical challenge, you've got the line of, I'm going to do this because it's really fun. I can do it for charity and we can do it the first time maybe. And then there's the other side of the line, which is, which I've done lots of that stuff before, mm-hmm. but then the other side is, this is a trip that is not going to be enjoyable because it's going to be so physically demanding and mentally draining. And you then have to kind of just get yourself into that space. And I knew that Run Britain was going to be like that. It was going to be so difficult to the point of very much not enjoying it every day. And then you eventually get out the other side of it. So I think I had the advantage that I knew it was going to be pretty brutal. Um, But then you kind of overcome it and you get to the end. And of course, you feel great because the harder it is, it's just like any session, right? The harder it is, the more you feel great about it afterwards. So you obviously had that experience before, though, didn't you, from the Run the World as well? Yeah. Would you say that was, obviously there's going to be advantages that you'd already done so much running, but from a psychological point of view, a mental point of view, hmm. do you think you, that kind of put something in the back of your head where you were thinking, I know this is going to be painful, I know there's going to be potential for injuries, I know this is going to come up, and it, it made you more wary? I don't know. I actually think running the world probably taught me that whatever happens, it doesn't really matter. Because running the world was this huge pivotal moment in my life where I came, I started running the world a different person to when I came back. I, I'm not the same person as before because I've seen the context of poverty and set the charity up and all these different things. And so I went into everything I've done since running the world with a view of, well, I'm putting myself through this pain. I've got you know water coming out the tap. I've got food in the fridge. I'm actually pretty lucky. So a little bit of suffering is going to be okay. So I think if anything, it actually bolstered my my mindset but I did have in the back of my mind that the pain was going to be far greater because running the world was marathon in every country over 674 days and there's 196 countries so that's 196 marathons over 23 months what I did in run Britain was 200 marathons in four months so it's like eight times harder Mm -hmm. right something like that so much more physically demanding so I knew that was going to be the, the critical bit we got through it but you say that that was a a greater challenge in regards to being physically demanding. Mm. But there was lots of other challenges that came up in in Run the World, wasn't there? Yeah. Which it, I mean, there's the list is is endless of of challenges yeah. that you faced. I mean, even running in some of those countries, mm. just because the way that they are culturally and yes. has society itself must have been difficult. Just to, to name one, kind of running through North and South Korea. Must yeah. have been an absolutely eye-opening experience yeah. in it in itself. They were all all different. Every country was different for different reasons. And something that I've always said is that my expectation of every country that literally every country that I went to was different. Um, even London, silly as silly as it is, <laughs> you expect London to be a little bit rainy and cold, and 
back in, what was it, 2018, there was the hottest marathon they'd had on record. And it was 24 degrees. And yet I was freezing because I'd just come back from yeah. 45 degrees in Africa. And so what you expect to feel in Britain, in any country, is just wrong. And so something like North Korea or South Korea, um, you, you have this view of what you think it's going to be like. And then you get there and it's all completely different. So you have to keep adapting to what it's like. Um, it snowed in the final few miles of the marathon in North Korea. Um, we had some most amazing sunsets there. And the skyline of the buildings in Pyongyang in the, in the capital are the most brightly colored buildings you can ever imagine. And it's like a, almost like a Lego town, um, nothing like you'd expect it to be. And yet when you visit the schools and you go around the town, it's still pretty bleak and you learn about the the way in which they live is more or less on par. So everywhere I went, my expectations were all wrong one way or another. And that's also quite difficult to overcome because it's draining. You know, if you turn up somewhere, even yeah. if you've, I don't know, you booked a studio, you go and see mates in the pub and you have an expectation of what the evening might be. But when it's on such a long like long scale, two years, and you're on your own traveling from one country to the next doing three countries a week. It's just this like, I don't know, assault on all the senses and you yeah. have to kind of adjust to it. Obviously we see so much as well about North and South Korea. As a, as a man who's ran in, in both of those places, how, mm. how different are they? And, how, and kind of mm. talk us through those, those two experiences. Very. Uh, so, so different. So I actually ran on Run Britain with... Uh, a chap called Ju, J-U, uh, and he is an anaesthetist in, I hope he listens to this because he's such an amazing guy, and he, he's an anaesthetist in Glasgow in hospital. And lovely, lovely chap. Uh, his family are in uh, just on the outskirts of, outskirts of Seoul in South Korea, and we got chatting and running. He came out to run with me for, I think it was, I think he did 20K with me or something. And we just got chatting, and he said, so, same question as you, like, what do you think? Because he's not been to North Korea, mm-hmm. and I have, and yet, He's a Korean. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, so, so how, you know, what, what's your view? And mostly we had the same, same outlooks on stuff. It was North Korea is controlled. It's very, very clean. Uh, I, there's no chewing gum because there's no American products in the country. So you don't see as every street you go to nearly in every city around the world, it's you have some litter or you have a bin or you have posters on the underground. But North Korea is the only place I've ever been to, having been to all of the countries and tell you it's the only place where people line up in orderly, silent lines in the underground. The underground being completely different to how you would expect it to be. Very, very quiet. Uh, Put it this way, when we went into the stadium, if you'd go to any city marathon around the world, you have, I don't know, let's say it's Athens, you have people cheering and chanting and lots of kind of tannoy announcements, et cetera. But in the North Korean stadium in Pyongyang, there was 80,000 locals in the stadium, huge stadium, and they were all probably told to be there and they were all conducted in the way that they were clapping. Really? So I have this video when you line up to go in the stadium and they were given these foil boards that they put on their hands so everybody claps with the same sound. It's that controlled. And each of the different parts of the stadium have a conductor and they conduct the clapping so they can cheer in an orderly fashion. Is this off camera or? This is, this is, what do you mean? If they film anything, do they try and, as in hide? Oh, no, 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 don't, no they don't hide it. No, this okay. is, this is public. This is the bits that, exactly, this is the bits they're okay with you seeing. Um, and they will, all of a sudden they'll be clapping and cheering and then they'll say stop and it's just a 
deadly instant silence. It's the most amazing thing. Imagine having that in Wembley, like all of a sudden it's just pin drop silence and then they go again. Um, And like each individual sections will do their certain bits of clapping in a certain different way. And then you, you line up neatly in the stadium, you run out of the stadium out to out around the city and back again. And then when I ran in South Korea in Seoul, uh, it's pretty vibrant, like young, like it's, how do I describe it? Maybe the equivalent of Shoreditch, um, as, as close as you can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was pretty trendy. The, like, there's lots of young people just doing whatever they want to do. There's lots of colours around um, and you just get the complete opposite. So, and I think the, sad, the, the saddest thing about the whole thing is that a lot of people in North Korea do know to an extent what they're missing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, learned. I went to a school to speak and it was an English class that I, I, I kind of talked at and I was given a very specific set of do's and don'ts with you can't ask them about this you can't ask them about that because who was that who was that enforced by the, the school so no not the school well the school and the government because they are one I suppose yeah. so you go you have a guide that you're with but that guide is also with a um, a member of the the government I suppose uh, it's very it's very overt in the sense that we are here to police and make sure that you stay with you all at all times oh at all times really yeah and every every foreigner stays in one building and you you can't just wander around the city yourself you but have that, they, they put that in place and essentially make you feel safe but it's more so potentially to govern where and what you're doing not to make you feel safe to govern us and yeah. it's very overt that you know you're going to be here when we say you're going to be here you're going to see this and we went to the I mean I'd recommend anybody to go to North Korea because you just it's just brilliant. And they have this war museum that they take you to, to to show you about the war. And they have this video and it's obviously North Korean propaganda and yeah. it's just all completely wrong. And it's you, you're trying hard not to laugh at what you're watching because you have to show respect when you're yeah. there, but it's just complete rubbish. Um, and you you do come away feeling like you've you've seen quite a humorous, but also really sad at the same time yeah. situation. Yeah. So yeah, but North Korea... Um, I went in via a, a tour company called Choreo Tours. They were just brilliant because they put on the, uh, uh, all of the foreigners for the North Korean marathon. Um, little things like the, the nationals, the North Koreans, when they run the marathon there in Pyongyang, they don't take part in the same race. They do a different race. So then a North Korean person can never lose. Really? So, yeah, it's that you can't lose to another country because oh they've got goodness. their own race. L- little things like that. Yeah. It's just like, that's classic North Korea. It's like so. a little bubble then, isn't it? Because... Yeah. You read stuff sometimes about it and they, they have a different internet, don't they, over there? And there's, I don't oh, think like from SIM from oh, SIM no cards. Yeah. Or from yeah. SIM cards, you can't ring outside of North Korea well, and stuff. Lucky so, if you get a SIM card. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it's it's a mass, it's just this big contained bubble yeah. almost, isn't it? Which kind of yeah. is trying to exclude the Yeah, the yeah other absolutely. World. And and I think there's lots of other countries out there that people don't know about that are very similar to that. You've got the likes of Turkmenistan and Bhutan. And lots of other maybe war-torn countries, but Turkmenistan being being one that's pretty uh, overtly similar to North Korea. Not as many sanctions, but also China. China has a lot of restrictions on the internet um, where you you can't search for the normal things you would normally search with. Uh, and so I think we need to be a little bit wary of that when we, we go to these kind of places because you, you just don't expect it. So all those countries that you've been to then, which would you say is the one where you've kind of been like, if I say something out of place, I'm fucked. This is kind of where it's a bit squeaky bum all the time. Oh, there's lots. Um, 
or, or one where you felt this, really felt endangered and, potentially? Yeah, I think the one that really stands out was crossing over the border from Oman into Yemen. This was quite close to the end of the trip. Um, and I, I had a pretty dodgy situation where the last 10 countries or so, bearing in mind, I've been away for like 22 months and we were so close to the finish line. <laughs> we had to get to Athens at the finish line on, on November the 11th. We had to get there on time. And we were hopping from these war zones to the next war zone. And I got this driver to take me overland from Amman into Yemen. And the plan was to get in and get out within a day, do the run and get, get back. And we lots and lots of effort, a very long story about how you try and work out which border you go through. Um, got there at night. The plan was to stay in a hotel on the Amman side. But we got there and that hotel was basically just like a shepherd's hut. And there was nothing there. And so we decided to go through the border. He didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any of his language. It was half Arabic, half French, and half something else, which I'm not entirely sure. Um, managed to speak a little bit of French to one another. And we ascertained that he wanted to take me over the border that night because it was going to be safer to stay in the Yemen side. And I thought, well, that's not the plan. I don't have any cell signal. My sat phone wasn't working to call people to say what was happening. Who are you with at this point? Sorry. I was on my own oh. with a driver. Oh, so just you? Just me and the driver. In the middle of, you know, four or five hour drive in the middle of nowhere towards the, the Yemeni border. And this drive you've known for? Like four or five hours on the drive. Yeah. And we don't speak to each other. Um, and so, but that's fine. I've done lots of journeys like that. Yeah. That's, you know, you just trust and you kind of sleep on the way and you get it done. You get there and just hope for the best. But as we then went through the border, um, do the normal checks with the car, uh, lots of dogs, lots of people with weapons, lots of kind of chatting. And then things got a little bit more heated. And I started to realize something wasn't quite right. And I just pretended to be asleep for a bit. Just to, like, let's just hope yeah. things go okay. Um, and my heart was going, I was like, this isn't okay. People were shouting and they ordered us out of the car. They searched the car. And then it turned out this driver was use, effectively using me as a mule to get counterfeit goods and drugs into the country. Uh, and I had no idea. And I was just an innocent bystander. And the, the biggest fear I had wasn't getting shot or anything like that. It was getting locked up and nobody knowing because the British government don't have a responsibility to go and get you in a country where they've explicitly told you not to go. Um, and so I could have potentially just been left and you'd still be trying to get me back now. So that was very scary. As it happens, I got out of the car lots of shouting, no idea what was said because I didn't understand. Yeah. But ultimately I realized that they came to a deal that as long as they received all of the drugs and all of the counterfeit goods, it was everything from like um, perfume in strange bottles to uh, shoes, to drugs, to medicine, to all sorts of stuff like that, to natural herbs and things. And they basically just gave, the driver gave everything to the guards and then they let us through. But the biggest problem that I then thought was, that's an amazing relief. How do we get back? Because we don't have anything to barter with. We gave them everything, everything. that was there. Um, and I didn't get the stamp I needed to say I was officially in Yemen. Uh, not for my record, but for the process of coming out. You know, when you go yeah. into a country, yeah. you get a stamp and say you've entered on that so day. So when I leave, are they going to think I've entered the country illegally? Like, do they not know if it's not the same people? Um, so anyway, we got there, we slept in this, uh, abandoned house, if you like. It was just run down. It was horrendous. Lots of construction. Did the marathon the next day in scorching heat. It's like 40 plus. Absolutely horrendous. And there was military tanks just roaming around with their weapons and kids with guns. 
And I just got my head down and got this run done and then eventually got out. Um, but it took us about four or five hours at the border to persuade and talk ourselves out of the country. And all of that, not knowing, obviously I know now that I got out, but at the time you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's the most, and I'm, I'm like 190 countries in or something by this point, absolutely exhausted. I look a, I look a mess. I've got passports from every, uh, from stamps in passports from every country in the world. So I look like a, a dodgy traveler. <laughs> um, and, and you just think, let's just hope. And fortunately it was okay. We got back to the airport. We drove the four or five hours. Um, little bizarre things like he had to go and drop a windshield off to a mate of his on the way. Just favors all the way. Yeah. And I was like, a windshield. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's, let's do that. But my flight, and he was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And I only just made my flight to the next country. And so things like that happened more or less everywhere. Um, oh and the gosh. book details it all in more in more more detail, but it was just just ridiculous. So do you just become more almost desensitized to those kinds of situations as you move move through and you go through some of these countries where you just think Yeah, certainly in Africa, when I first experienced um like tolls on roads. So basically it's bribery. So they would just chuck a log down in the middle of the road so you can't drive through and they'd go like give us your money well then you'd barter back and forth and then you'd barter back and forth and they'd take some money off you and then they'd move the log and you drive through and that would happen over and over and over again as you drive through different countries and anybody that's you know traveled overland in africa this would have happened many times but when it happens the first time you're like this is dodgy i'm not giving you my money and then you realize it's not really dodgy at all it's just the tax of the roads it's just what happens so if you don't do it all you're really helping is them and not yourself. You're not being able to get through. So you just pay and then you pay again. And then by the time the fifth or sixth time comes around, you just get out of the car and give them the money yeah. and they move. <laughs> you know? so, so it's basically like the Mersey tunnel, but instead of having a, a little thing <laughs> that goes up and down and a, and a guy and they have a, they have a knife and a gun way. instead and a log, basically. Yeah. Wasn't well, there was a point, yeah. I think you were in Nigeria and you were mm. held at knife point or there yeah. was something. At gunpoint, yeah. And at gunpoint, is that mm. the first experience you've had with being held at gunpoint in terms of like the countries or is that Yeah, no, happened? Nigeria was bad. Yeah. Yeah, Nigeria was um it was very scary actually. I was in Lagos, um, biggest open air market in the world. Think kind of car boot sale cross between like a, a tough mudder. <laughs> like oh my it God. was really muddy. Like I'm talking like knee high mud everywhere. Um and Chaos. You're talking like miles and miles of just chaos of stalls, of stands, of cars, of the car parks. You just park your car anywhere you possibly can and you get blocked in and you might be there for a week. And that's normal. That's normal. And then you walk through and I was arm in arm with these two guys that were there to, one of them was a, like a junior politician within the country and they were showing me around the markets and I was taking pictures. This was the day after the run. So every now and then I had a day off. Um, from running and so I thought let's go and see Lagos because it's such a famous mm. market and I was I was scared actually I was shaking a little bit and I'm not a fighter and I thought well if something goes wrong in this situation you just run away yeah but the biggest concern was kidnapping so before we started the whole journey like two years of planning went into it and we we highlighted all of the countries into a red amber and green list of what dangers are where and why and how we should overcome them to try and be as sensible as you yeah. can because most things that go wrong are where you haven't thought about it properly. Oh yeah, you need a contingency you for need, every, yeah, I need to every understand. single country. Yeah. Spot on. And, I, and, I, and I went in thinking, right, kidnap is bad. If you get kidnapped, you just have to make sure that they can like, call somebody to pay a ransom. We had our ransom in, uh, insurance and all that sort of stuff ready. Let's be careful. 
And I went in thinking that that was my only risk. And then, of course, these guys surrounded us with weapons and they, at first, just kind of generally asked for my camera. And then I was like, no, no, it's my camera. I know, I know what you're trying to do. And then they get more pushy. And then they start to push to the floor. They kick me in the ribs. I had like a cracked rib. Um, and they start to then shout and get the weapons out. And then that then gets heated to a point where you've got a knife to your throat and they're holding guns at you. Um, and I'm, I never thought that I was going to get killed or shot. But it was, you don't have any time to think that, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just like, what? what is going on? Yeah. I was just walking through the market and now I'm on the floor in a ball not knowing what's going on and you can't run away because there's no room. It's absolutely rammed. Um, and these guys that I was with were pretty strong uh, and held people off. There was five or six of them and I could see police, two police officers in uniform nearby just watching what was going on. And I realised then that as long as they didn't kill me, they would just watch and they would probably get some of what they were taking from yeah. us. Oh my God. Um, and so I was like, this is whatever is going to be, we'll be here, but managed to keep hold of the camera and we gave them cash, um, the, all of the money that we had on us, including the people that I was with. Um, and then one of them told me to run and I ran away, um, kind of just hobbling through these streets and muddy and it was just ridiculous. And then I realized I'm away, I'm safe. And it's like, the biggest risk here was kidnapping and now I'm on my own without anything, without any money in the middle of Lagos market and I don't know where I am. Um, and uh, finally, somebody came and found me. The guy who was actually staying with the car found me and we walked back to the car and got out. But that took about five hours to get out of the traffic. And it really? was just terrifying. Um, and then you get on the airport and then you leave and... Yeah. To the next place. Yeah, you and leave and, and never go place. back. Yeah. Oh my god! How much did you end up paying? In, do, you, do you know how much you end up probably paying in bribes across the whole? We think uh, it depends whether you say bribes or like the the taxes of the road, like we were talking about. Mm. Um, anywhere between two thousand and six thousand pounds. I think really? it was probably more like six if you count the the African style checkpoints. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's but that that's a lot of money, but right. at the same time, it you can't not pay it. Um, and, and even a passport control in airports, you know, they would, as you hand the passport, they hand your passport back to you, they keep hold of it, and then they just give you the signal of, give me some money and I'll let the passport go. And at first, that's really intimidating. When you're in an airport, you think that's oh, a safe gosh, place. Yeah. And after a while, you just learn to be like, nah, and snatch the passport and, and walk on. Um, but imagine that happening well, at Heathrow. Yeah. It's either <laughs> you that just, or you just feel like, oh. But if, you don't, if you're not used to it, and fortunately yeah. I had a lot of good conversations with people that had done a lot of travelling before and like security people that just said like, keep, keep an eye out for this and this might be normal. And as soon as you've had it a few times, you start to settle in. Um, but it's still, it's still a little bit intimidating when it happens. Yeah. What about in European countries? Did you run, run into as much trouble in Europe, um, Eastern Europe, yeah, uh, there was plenty of plenty of trouble in in some of the countries. Um, mostly airport related, kind of paying, you know, noticing that people were paying to take things through scanners when they shouldn't be that sort of thing, and lots of scanners that just weren't working in airport in airports. And people just pushing, ridiculous as it is, it happens in lots of places, pushing bags through security scanners that were off. The machines weren't working, they were broken, but just 
to say they'd put the bag through the scanner. And that isn't obviously a threat to me or a bribe to me, but it's also, uh, this isn't normal. Like, am I going to be okay here? That kind of thing. Um, But no, I I can't think of anything that happened in, maybe you can, maybe you know something that I can't remember. I was only saying that because I think some, for me specifically, I went to Greece, must have been when I was 22. And we, me and my mates were pulled over by the police, or mm. we battered by the police, put in the back of cars and then taken to the, like, it wasn't a jail, yeah. it was almost like a shed with bars on. Yeah. And, and then, and then kind of got help and said, pay us three grand, or we're going to take you up to the hills and just batter you all night. And that was in Greece, yeah. I think. And it's so scary when it happens, like you're trying to get hold of the embassy and, and all of this yeah. stuff and you can't get hold of anyone, no one else speaks, speaks yeah. English. And you're with the people who you, believe you would have some kind of trust and safety with yeah. and as I said that was in Greece never mind the countries that, that you went around with yeah. as well and I think what that did for me as I'm sure probably did for you as you you're roaming around the world it gives you a massive appreciation for the security versus liberty that you have what we do in have. the UK yeah, yeah absolutely There's, I don't know about Europe I mean Greece for me was my last country it was like my final touchdown so it was the opposite experience for yeah. you I was like elated to be in the final country but there were places where I was running I can't remember where I was now I was in Africa somewhere uh, I think Ethiopia or Kenya and I was running along a, a street and I was just taking a video for social media just like here I am this is what mile I'm on um, and then a guy ran after me and said, um, I'm police, give me your phone. I saw you taking a video of this building. You're not allowed to take a video of the building. I said, like, oh, no, I'm not. It's just, unfortunately, by that point, I'd done enough traveling in Europe, in, in Africa, to know that he was probably legit, but I'm still not letting go of my phone yeah. to give it to him. And I said, no, I'm not letting go of my phone. And he said, I'll arrest you if you don't give me. And I said, arrest me then. But I would not have done that if that was my first ever experience of it, I would have just given my phone and he would have probably disappeared with it. Yeah. Um, as it happens, he was legit. I had to go and speak to the people in the building, the security people. I had loads of people there looking at all the photos on my phone. And I said, no, no, I'm running around the world. This is what I'm doing. This is my website. This is the embassy contact I have, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and eventually they let me go. But they were trying it on as well. It was a legit stop, but they were also trying to keep my phone. Yeah. You know, so... Testing the waters, but that's yeah, you know, that's yeah, that's minor versus all the other bits. That there was um, there was nine, was it nine countries or nine presidents? Nine you presidents. Ran- nine presidents you ran yeah. with. Yeah, I feel like that's so random. It's a bit random, isn't it? It's a bit random, but it's amazing. But it's, yeah, and that is all thanks to social media because oh, really? as the trip kind of spiraled, we had loads of people that were sharing my Facebook on different running groups, yeah. and then all of the runners I had with me including the presidents, were all, bar one or two, were all really keen runners themselves. Oh, wow. And so they had either seen me six months before in another country and they thought, well, when Nick comes here, we have to try and do that. Um, which is really cool. cool. Yeah. But at the time, I was, it was, it became normal. It was really strange. I was in um, the Congo, ridiculously, and I happened, I was just in from my run and I sat down because I start really early in the morning. So by the time I got back, it was just about lunch service at this hotel, the only hotel decent hotel there and it happened to be the funeral of the head of state in the Congo so there was loads of presidents in the hotel I had no idea and I was at the buffet in my sweaty like really (laughs) dirty vest and I was getting my food to sit down and I happened to sit down next to the the president of Zambia and you didn't know at that point no no No. idea who it was I was just eating (laughs) Um, and then loads of like these guards came over because he was just on a table of four on his own and uh, and they 
they said to me, oh, they said to me to move. And he went, no, 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 it's okay. And then we got chatting and then he, he wasn't one of the ones that I ran with, but he was one of the ones that wanted to kind of be involved in wow. chat. And it was just the most random experience. So yeah, we did a, we did a few, uh, he got up and did a few walks around the canteen to say he could have done stuff Aww. with me. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> um, but it's just bizarre. In the Congo, <laughs> with the president of Zambia, president of Zambia has no need to go to Congo, like for 10 years, just, just the one day yeah. that happened to be the funeral of a head of state. So, um, I'm sure you probably run into other interesting people around mm. the world who else is kind of on the so many brilliant people everybody from just the people that put you up that you don't really expect people that don't speak English and yet somehow have come across what you're doing they speak no word of English and they want to home you and house you and feed you and show you the route and that's bizarre I still don't quite understand how some of those situations come about there was a couple of chaps there's one person a guy called Alan who um, is a, a Paralympian C2 cyclist um, who lives in Ghana, um, in the capital Accra. And he is in my calendar. So in my iPhone calendar notes, it says like, who I'm running with or if anybody's hosting me or whatever. In the morning of the run, I looked at my calendar and I went downstairs and it said, uh, Alam, C2 cyclist, like supporting you. I was like, brilliant. And I got out there and... I assumed he'd be cycling with me, but he wasn't. He was running with me. Really? And this was a guy that only had one working leg. He was a polio survivor, couldn't walk um, until he was 10 years old. He was literally crawling until then. Um, and he has no use of his right leg. And he said, oh, I think I might do some miles with you on, on my crutches. And I was thinking, amazing, but I need to get a move on. Yeah. And he could run so quickly. With crutches? With crutches. Like to the point that I was out of breath running with him and he was on crutches and he, has, he was so strong and lean as well. Just crutch, crutch, crutch. It was amazing. And we just got chatting and he talked what about was it, his... What was the guy's name? Alam. A-L-E-M. He's got a British coach. A-L-A-M. E-M. A-L-E-M. Alam, C2 cyclist, Ghana, I think. Yeah, so I say that, have a look at it. Yeah, have a look at that. And he's just an amazing chap. And I've got a video with him and he's just working away. And I... He was a guy that... A polio survivor thought that he was going to die very, very young, couldn't have any life prospects in Ghana. And he now has a British coach, trains all over the world. He's been in two Paralympics. And I'm fortunate enough to chat with him whilst running in Ghana when I woke up that morning having no idea what was about to happen. And then within 12 hours, I'm in another country doing it with somebody else. It's just ridiculous. It's so, incredible. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky. And just those things, they change you forever. You can't ever come back from that. This is slightly, it's not off topic, but not talking mm. about people. Did you come across any animals mm. that you weren't kind of <laughs> expecting or did anything? I don't know, mm. do you know what I mean? Like random, yeah. like lion, like There's actual lots. real life lions. Real, not just, not just <laughs> not ones you imagine. One. <laughs> not just ones I imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, lot, I've seen lots of lions. So, um, Obviously, there's lots of like, great national parks around the world. So when I was in some of those countries, I went to national parks. But I also tried to see a lot of animals in the wild. So whether it be in Madagascar, going and seeing the, the classic animals in Madagascar, of which there's yes. not just lemurs, but lots of other brilliant, yeah. And like, I don't know, toucans in, um, where, where was I then? Like, just amazing animals in all sorts of different places. But I think, yeah, the one to talk about there would be when I was in Namibia. Uh, and I went to see... Uh, to try and find some cheetahs. 
I was in this hotel, had a day off. I managed to persuade this very grumpy receptionist in this hotel to try and find me a guide to take me somewhere within driving distance to find some cheetahs. And then the guy turned up and he was a little bit dodgy to say the <laughs> least. But by that point, I could suss the dodgy out and I was like, let's just see what, what happens here. Um, and we drove for hours into the middle of nowhere. He had a gun with him just to, like, to protect us, mm-hmm. just me and him. Uh, and we got out of the car and he said, right, I'm going to go this way. You go that way. If you see a cheetah, just shout. And I was tired and I thought maybe a bit stupid as well. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll just carry on. (laughs) And as we were walking away, he said, oh, just look out for snakes. Um, And I remember thinking at the time, hmm, look out for snakes. Like this is going to be, I might be disappointed by what's happening here because he didn't say look out for cheetahs. He said, look out for snakes. And I just thought maybe we're not going to see any cheetahs at all. And he's just having me on. And if I see a snake, then I might be lucky. Uh, And we were walking along and I heard some rustling in the bushes. And I was convinced that I would probably see a snake because that's maybe what he was expecting yeah. me to see. And it was a cheetah. And I was super close, as close as we are now. Really? And, and I was like, oh, <laughs> what, <laughs> what do I do? Um, and he said oh. to shout. And I was like, I'm not going to shout because I'll get eaten. Uh, and, <laughs> and I can't run because I like running, but I'm not as fast as yeah. a cheetah. Um, and so I just kind of froze for a bit and I got my phone out and I thought, right, if something's going to happen, let's get this on camera. So at least I'm eating and I've got it on record, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Good show. And I got, I got it, I got my phone out and I had really low battery and I was thinking, like, come on, if you're going to eat me, eat me now or not at all. <laughs> um, and uh, the cheetah kind of did its little crouch down thing and just walked directly to me. I was like, this isn't good. And I felt like saying, like, like, shoo, <laughs> go, go away, nice <laughs> cat. Um, uh, but I didn't say anything and I just videoed and the cheetah just walked straight towards me and literally brushed past my leg. Same jeans I've got on now, actually. Really? Literally brushed past, brushed past my leg and just ran past me. And At I, which point did you shit yourself? A um, couple of times. Uh. No, no, it really was like that. I was like, this is not good. My heart was absolutely going crazy. Um, and once he'd gone, I just sat down and just, sat there for a bit and thought about what had happened and then it dawned on me like what if there's more of them so I kind of moved quite quickly and found my guide again um, and uh, he didn't believe me he didn't believe that I'd seen a cheetah and I showed him the video and he went oh you're lucky <laughs> and I was like do you mean I'm lucky to see one or lucky to be lucky alive, to be alive. Um, oh my God. that must have been the most surreal experience I'll, yeah, I'll show you the video it's, um, it's, uh, it's yeah, we'll pop it on yeah. screen as well yeah. so much things to pop on yeah. screen that must have been surreal it was, it was amazing. And, and after that, I mean, I'd seen so many, you know, you name it, any of the big animals in the world, lions, everything. Elephants. Apart from, elephants. Apart from tigers, I've not seen tigers. Mm. Um, you name it, I've seen it up close in national, in parks and things like that. But actually seeing a wild cheetah so close to me and being alive <laughs> was it, quite a good thing. Were you in any other situations where you kind of, I don't know, almost feel kind of a sense of insecurity? whilst being out in the wild or being around animals, which, which kind of um, put you in danger? Yes. So, well, a couple of things. Insecurity-wise, from people, from the people aspect, when I was in um, Caracas, um, capital of Venezuela, which is actually the capital of, like, kidnap capital of the world. Um, just as I arrived there, I tried... So we have this system in place whereby... If something was going wrong and I don't check in with the security team that are kind of keeping monitoring on me, then they would kind of raise the alarm and say, Nick's not checked in. And they would try and get hold of me. 
And I decided before I got to Venezuela to test it because I wanted to make sure it was working and that if something happened to me, somebody would actually come and get me. And we tested it and nothing happened oh, really? like for weeks. And I was like, I've not checked in for weeks and nobody is coming to look for me. This is not good. And I arrived in Krakow and I was really angry. And I remember calling people. And I was like, get rid of this company. They're useless. They're not protecting me. Um, and I went out and ran in Krakow feeling very scared because it's, you know, you're more yeah. likely to get kidnapped than not, basically. Um, but I had an amazing time. There was the most amazing surf that I was running next to. It was the most, it's exactly what we're talking about with ex- expectations. It was the opposite. It was brilliant. Um, ran out of water though that day, but that's another story. But in terms of other animals, uh, dogs were a big problem in lots of countries, which you don't think about as a Westerner because I love my little puppy and I wouldn't think about dogs being a problem. Was it the Marshall Islands? I think I made a note of that. Yes. Some of the mar- but there are lots and lots and of countries, but the Marshall Islands was the big one. You run like 300 laps around a car park, park to avoid dogs. Yeah. So yeah. you just you just circle on this small car park and get Tiny somewhere. car park. Yeah. So when I when I left the when I arrived at the hotel, one of the tiny hotels, so the Marshall Islands is a few miles long in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And I turned up at this hotel. Hotel, when I say hotel, these aren't, you know, Marriott's and big chain hotels. These are like you say, just sheds. Yeah. And I got given a room key and I got given a stick. And they said, you're, the, so you, like you check in. Uh, yeah, you everybody got a stick and a, seriously, there was like uh, a run of... Expl- explanation of the... And they the said, thing. you'll need the stick for the dogs. And I was <gasps> no. like, okay. And they said, yeah, nobody goes outside without having some form of protection because the dogs are too aggressive. And I'd been to lots of places. South America is pretty bad for them. Um, and I thought, no, nah, I'd be okay. But I took the stick for the first few miles out of, out of the door and I got about a mile and a half, no more than two miles, and I was just surrounded by dogs. Really? Very, very big, grumpy dogs. So these were, um, these were running after you as you were running? You're running after me, but also just like circling me and cutting me off and not being able to get in. And when dogs growl at you yeah. and show their teeth and they're aggressively barking, one of them, bad enough. Two of them, bad. Like 20 at least. I'd just die. It was oh horrendous. And I days. had this stick and I was swinging the stick to try and protect me. There was... Some of the dogs, and I remember this one particular black dog just creeped up behind me and was so close to my heels. And I'd already been bitten in Tunisia like months before. Um, and I had to go and get rabies shots and stuff from another dog attack. Oh and in the Marshall Islands, I thought, this is terrible. Went back to the hotel and I said, I, I literally walked back swinging the stick behind, behind me. Um, and I got back and I was like, can I, is there anywhere else I can go that doesn't have dogs? And they were like, well, well there's an island. You have to get a, a boat to it. And it's an island as part of the country. And I thought, right, brilliant. And one of the air hostesses that was staying in the hotel on one of these little planes overheard my conversation. And she said, don't go there because you can't run. It's too rocky. Oh. And had I gone there, I would have missed my chance to run in that country because I didn't have enough time and I would have left. But luckily she overheard me and she said, all you got to do, you can, can't go anywhere. You have to either go out and try and run or not at all. And the car park space of like dirt I suppose near near the hotel the only place that didn't have dogs that were awake there was a few dogs that were sleeping dogs that were awake was the car park and so I just ran around in circles 300 odd laps um, and a few hours in it just torrential rain so I was really miserable that day <laughs> so you just but you I run around the car park circles. in the rain yeah it took me like 20 seconds to do a lap that's how tiny it was oh, really yeah yeah, just round and round and round and round and round what did you all the time what, what holding this stick think? in what? case the dogs go. Oh my go. God, what were you thinking about? What, well, I was you... thinking this is going to be hilarious <laughs> to tell the story because yeah. by that point I'd seen so many, so many problems. Oh I was a bit worried about the dogs actually biting me, not because yeah. I thought it was going to 
hurt and take me out of the race. But because the last time that happened in Tunisia, it I think we spent like £4,000 trying to rejig flights because I had to go and get rabies jabs back in Britain really? because the country I was going to didn't have the rabies shot available. Um, so it was just a pain. And I yeah. thought, I really don't want this to happen because I was in the Pacific Ocean and that meant at least a £5,000 journey somewhere. To, to try and find this stuff because you can't just hop from one place to the other. Either. Speaking of injections, ah, hmm. did did you just have to get... All of them. All of the them? The full house. Yeah, full house at the beginning. That took a few months of... How how many... Well, I can't remember. I honestly lot, can't put though, a number on it. it. Even yeah. for Africa, it's like five or six. Yeah, which just everything. If you turn up to a travel clinic, you just say, I'll have all of them, yeah. please. And then they book... Literally, it's what I did. And then they book you in. And I travelled with, um, I think it was 220 days worth of, um, what's, it, what's it called? The malaria meds. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. Um, I can't remember. One of the malaria meds that you just like take every day for, for the malaria. Um, but it's that's also poses another problem when you travel with, I was taking 11 supplements every day for nutrition, like probiotics, trying to get, plus 11 supplements for 600 days. Plus a load of malaria tablets. Um, my bag was looked pretty dodgy. And then you have stamps oh in God, all of these yeah. different places. You get searched all the time. Did you get anything taken off you? Actually, no. That's quite no. surprising, I, I feel, know. in some of the countries. And I started the trip with like bags of protein, which <laughs> looks worse. Uh, Creatine is the worst. Big bags of powder. Oh my God. And, and eventually I just, I stopped taking it because it was just too much hassle at airports. None, I was never taken away from me and they always just opened it up and they were like, yeah, it's fine. But it was just the hassle. I couldn't be bothered to explain everything yeah. over and over again. So, so laps. Laps of, yeah. Laps you, of had, you ran laps somewhere else as well, didn't you? In Vatican City. Vatican City, I did 82 laps. And then in Jamaica, in Kingstown, uh, Kingston, the capital, I did uh, 140 laps. Was that just because of the... The size of the and the the, the geographical area that you have to run around that you, in, you have to do that all in Jamaica. No, Jamaica. There was lots of. It just so happened that the weekend I was there, there was a load of gang violence. One of the f one of the main gang families had just had one of the main heads of the gang brother had just been shot by a rival gang, and that weekend I was there, there were sixty seven murders in the city. Sixty seven murders by two families. Yeah, they were just fighting, and. The embassy said, you can go out. There are other British nationals in the country that are out and about, but we've told everybody not to go because you might just get caught in the crossfire. Was it? Okay. Um, yeah, they're because... not going to aim for me. But, but accidentally. But accidentally. Or just be running past somewhere and be seen to be, I don't know, supporting one of the gang. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but So I ran around the compound, um, which was brilliant and lovely. And the British embassy was just brilliant at helping me. Um, but... The embassy compound, there was a, an outdoor swimming pool. It was 40 odd degrees again. And I ran past this swimming pool every lap. And all I wanted to do was jump in the swimming pool. Um, but all things considered, it went quite well because I also had uh, had diarrhea that day, oh. which meant that if I hadn't done the compound, things probably would have, because I was like going to the toilet every three laps and drinking every one lap. And I was just, I was shut away. Is that because of the food and the, the water that um, you were consuming? Yeah, I can't remember why I was so... I had 22 different bouts of food poisoning on the trip, which is not good when you're running a marathon every couple of days. Just out both ends. Yeah. Really not okay. Yeah, I had a really bad incident in, in Norway. Um, and oh yeah, I remember actually when I was in 
Jamaica, I didn't get much sleep the night before because my had my entire bed was covered in cockroaches. Sounds nice. So, yeah. <laughs> because you were you were sick loads of times in Bangladesh as well, weren't you? Oh, Bangladesh was the worst. Bangladesh was the worst because it wasn't just food poisoning. I had um, a kidney infection. Um, and Anything that could have just gone wrong, you must have fucking ticked off the, the, <laughs> You've the, got the, the NHS alphabet as you were going through. I didn't, I didn't get shot and I didn't get officially arrested. So I feel like, and I, I didn't, I didn't miss, dead you were, I didn't miss a single flight. So just saying, that's quite a good 455 flights without a miss. But no, I, yeah, everything went, went, went wrong one time or another, which yeah, I suppose it's good for the story. But at the time, I just think, how is this happening? Why me? Yeah, why is this happening? But we, we do you got think it. it was the like the constant change of food in all the countries? Why you were getting like food poisoning and sickness? And I think it was a case of every time I came across food. So whether it was on a plane, whether it was in a hotel buffet. I remember this one buffet in Central Africa, and all they had was you know like the meat, um, like the silver platter trays with the lids on. They had one tray and then some side plates, and all they had was you know like Billy the Bear ham, like. They literally oh, just had yeah, like that. single slabs of ham. On, and I was like, oh, and you have to have that. But that was good for a breakfast. Yeah. And then you have stale pastries, you have airplane food. You're so hungry that you just keep eating, even though you think this is probably not going to be very good. Or you get taken out to dinner and they go, oh, yeah, have this lovely vegetable samosa. And you think, brilliant, but it's incredibly spicy. And then, <laughs> and then that really hurts your stomach as well. So it was a com- yeah a combination of everything and the heat the heat obviously doesn't help when you've yeah. you've got a kidney infection and if you've ever had a kidney infection it feels like you're being punched in the back so awful that's, and that's nice. what remember yeah. when that, we were in Barcelona and I thought I had a kidney infection it was yeah. like the worst pain in my life I used yeah. to get kidney infections yeah. all the time when I swam oh, I don't yeah. know if it's because we used to swallow the pool water or chlorine yeah. all the time like nine times a week <laughs> I used to live like yellow my eyes were like yellow just a really bad time. I couldn't even imagine fun. having to run. I was an absolute bitch when I had it and I had to come. We flew home from Barcelona. I was literally, <laughs> Lucy was like basically carrying me to the, to the doctors, never mind running a marathon would, on, on top of it the, as well. And, yeah. and after that, we flew to the, um, I flew to, uh, what's it, uh, the Maldives. And I was like, this is going to be Stunning. lovely. Beautiful. <laughs> and I was, I actually ran twice on that run. I stopped where I was running and ran to the hospital because I was in that much pain. And I was like, can I have some more painkillers? Um, can you do a scan for me? Because uh, I was, you know, my doctor was kind of on the phone to me and the Maldives wasn't quite what I expected. But really? So <laughs> really? Because I was ill. Oh, okay. I was Ill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I stayed on Mali and then I went out to an island, which was actually stunning. Um, I'll show you another picture of that as well. I yeah, ran around the sandbank. It was lovely. Yeah. Because there was, if I've read this correctly, there was 32 days where you didn't eat at all. Uh, I think there's more than that. You ate nothing for yeah. the... I think there's more than that. I can't remember. This. Is that just... Doesn't seem enough. Due to the point there was the resource of food went there or was that because you were ill and just didn't... Uh, a bit of both. So both. I'd say half and half. Sometimes because I was too ill and most of the time it was because I was in transit or somewhere. So if you arrive into a, an airport at two o'clock in the morning and it's not a normal airport, mm-hmm. there's no food or you can have like, I don't know, a bottle of nuts. Not a bag of nuts. Have you ever had nuts out of a bottle? bottle? Of nuts. No, never. Yeah. Wine bottle with nuts? No, never no. had that. That's an African thing. You just have an empty wine bottle and they just fill it with nuts and then sell it. A bottle, a glass bottle. No idea. Sounds so a bit anyway, bougie, so it's like, it? do you yeah. want some nuts? warm water and some nuts or nothing? And occasionally you just go, I'm just not going to eat. Yeah. Um, so that happens. Uh, yeah, mostly because I didn't have the time 
or I was asleep. That was another thing, like really being annoyed at being asleep on a plane. I actually made a note once on like a, on the back of a, uh, not an envelope, what's it called, a tissue. And I put it on my chest when I was going to sleep in the plane to say, wake me up, I'm hungry. Because I didn't so want to miss the food. <laughs> I was so tired. Um, because, yeah, it's like, do I sleep or do I eat? Yeah. Yeah, yeah completely. With the countries out of all of them, mm. what was the hottest and then the coldest? Okay, yeah. Those ones I do know because they were really extreme. Yeah, I can So imagine. the coldest was uh, the first country I went to. So I left on January the 6th, 2018 and flew to uh, Canada, Toronto. Ooh. It was supposed to be about minus 10. So I packed for cold, but it was minus 25 because they had a huge like freeze when I was there. Of course um, it did. I know. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and bearing in mind this took two years to plan, we set off from Heathrow and we stopped at a service station. My parents were dropping me off at the airport uh, and with my brother as well. And we looked on the news at this TV in the service station and the only aeroplane crash anywhere in the world was where I was flying to. And so the airport was closed in Toronto. The plane had crashed. And uh, and I I ended up getting to Heathrow not knowing if my flight was... And that was country number one on day one of the really? trip. So it just shows you what was happening. Fortunately, I got there and nobody was hurt in the accident and it was all good. But uh, So that was the coldest. I had to borrow clothes from reporters that had come to like do a piece on me the day I arrived. I, had to, I think I borrowed everything apart from underwear. Because I thought I had gloves, but one yeah. pair of gloves isn't enough when it's minus twenty-five, and like two pairs of leggings aren't enough when it's minus twenty-five. So did you, you find to... it very hard to run um, because it was so cold? I actually didn't because it was the first country. Because I had so much adrenaline yeah. and I'm waiting yeah. to do yeah, yeah, it. For sure. I just, I just got it done, and I was buzzing. Actually, it was freezing, and we 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 sheltered under a, a hand dryer in a public toilet <laughs> because it was that cold. I was like, I need to move my fingers. Um, so that was cold. Didn't slip over though on the ice, which was a plus. Was, yeah, um, plus. And then the hottest was one of the hardest runs I've ever done in Q8. It was plus 59. Oh my God. So basically Q8, 60 degrees. Kuwait, Middle East. Oh wow. Um, yeah, really yeah. 59. Yeah. I wish it was 60 so I could officially say yeah. 60. But it was 59. Yeah, 59 degrees. Um, and the most ridiculous thing, not really the heat, was the fact that I had... Uh, in the country, they have a really famous um, Harley Davidson biker gang that like really cool guys and they were really supportive. And they said, we want to come out and support you, Nick. These guys came out in leathers in plus 59 on their motorbikes. It was just melting. And supported me going at my running pace and all of their motorbikes died because they were trying to drive in 59 degrees when nobody else was around. So we started, I think, at like two o'clock in the morning to try and beat the heat and yeah. it was 40 something still <gasps> and I uh, it was, it was, I remember it was 38 on my uh, on my phone's temperature and I, when I went outside it then hit me with this it was just much higher than we thought it was going to be um, and then all of the Harley Davidson bikes broke down because it was they overheated um, one of them tried to do a bit of running with me gave up was running in jeans in 59 degrees it's not happening um, <laughs> and then I, I, I ran the rest on my own um, and then I was staying with the the British ambassadors uh, and his and uh, her husband in Q8. So they put me up, and I, I I just fell asleep the rest of the day. It was it was so brutal running in that temperature because you can't escape it. You think you think I just want to take all my clothes off and get cold, like get cool, but you can't do that because you then just burn and all of your you feel like yeah. your 
you're, you're cooking from the inside. Internally, yeah. So you just have to put I more clothes imagine. on. I can't imagine. We ran yesterday at 9 or 10 in the morning. I was going, babe, I'm going to melt. I'm melting. It got to 10 o'clock. It was like 80 degrees. I was like, I'm melting. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine what it was like running that, that, Very, that heat. I, I, mean, I do actually must... want to go and do it again because I can't really remember it fully because I'm, it was so extreme that I think my brain has tried to forget about it. Um, it, I can't believe it. I've got like screenshots of the, the temperature app on my phone. It's just what insane. Was, what was the terrain? I, I picture sand in the desert, oh, but yeah. I, I'm assuming it wasn't sand. Beautiful, fresh tarmac. Oh, lovely. Yes. Well, that's so, better than sand. Yeah, it wasn't sand. <laughs> no, so it's a really wealthy country um, oh. in most parts and obviously oil industry. And uh, it, everywhere is white apart from the roads. So you have like this vein of of the the black tarmac roads going through and it, I mean there's sand on it but it was a fresh road so yeah no sand <laughs> that's crazy I couldn't even I couldn't even fathom I mean what was the sunburn like the next day mm. no sunburn because uh, I got used to putting factor I thought as a kid you have factor 30 or factor 50 but I now know that you can get like factor 80 was it like paint it, it basically yeah basically yeah. Um, and I actually learned from um where is it? Burma, where people don't or can't afford or it isn't available to have proper sun cream. So they use clay, so they, a form of clay. So they cover their face in, in clay um, to keep them from burning. And so I, I didn't use clay, but I just used a lot of, a lot of sun cream and just kept, kept reapplying it, you know, like properly toweling yeah, off yeah, yeah. and then putting it back on again. Um, but I, I, yeah, I had a pretty good tan. Pretty good tan by that point because I'd done a, that was, I think, towards the end of the Middle East. So I don't know if you did, but did you run in the Antarctica? Is that even? No, it's possible? not a country. It's not a country. No. Well, there you go. There's my geography. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, owned by six different nations. Oh, wow. So, and I, admit, I think I'm right with that. It might have changed since I last looked a few years ago. Um, so, yeah, it's not technically a country, but I do want to run there mm. because it's the last of the continents, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and we did originally have it planned, but as soon as we got further into the trip, the finances of the trip, it was just, and it was also logistically very difficult to make sure that we could get into Antarctica because you obviously have a window. You can't go in, in the winter because yeah. it's all frozen. You have to go at the right time and yeah. when it's daylight and, and it costs 10, 20 grand to go because you have to get certain military planes or scientific interest planes to go there and, um, but I, and I, if I went there, lots of people have been to Antarctica. They don't actually get to the land, if that makes sense. Because mm. obviously, if you look at the poles, they're just ice, floating yeah. ice. In Antarctica, it being a continent, you have actually got land. And actually getting to the point where you're standing on land can be quite difficult. Um, so you can go to Antarctica, but be on yeah. an ice like raft, effectively. Yeah. Which is why there's, there's no, it's not a continent in the Arctic, because there isn't any land. So no, you, you, so mentioned, you mentioned logistics. <laughs> do, do you know how much kind of, from start to finish, mm. how much the whole thing costs you as well? Too much. Is too that not even too worth too much bearing? Money. Well, it's, it's just embarrassing, I think, because it was so, so over budget. We thought, when I did the original plan, my first number I came up with, and I've still got the document, I'm actually going and meeting tomorrow one of my old, old bosses from a long time ago in, in the bank um, that I presented to him, which is one of my first sponsorship options. And, I, and I, it was £97,200 is what I thought it was going to cost. 
And I knew that was on the low side, but I thought, we did our maths. We thought, you know, this much per flight, this many flights, this much per visa, this many visas, 120 visas, by the way, nine passports we got through because of so many stamps and passports cost money as well. And we were strict and we built in a little bit of buffers and built in a little bit of bribe money and built in a bit of contingency. And we thought about 120 grand might do it. And all in all, over the whole trip, it cost close to a million. So we were a bit out. A bit out, yeah. <laughs> tiny, tiny little bit But out. if you think, we, were, we thought we'd need 220 flights. We did 455. We thought we'd maybe need three passports. We did nine. So that gives you an idea of just how much went wrong all the time. And like 50-odd flights were cancelled and had to be rebooked. And when you have... If I say to you, right, go and book 11 months worth of flights every three days and then all of a sudden you get ill or you have a cancelled flight somewhere, you're, you're screwed. Yeah, you have to replan everything and you can't get the money back. So. It's like the hospital things as well where you've, like, you've got to pay money to the hospitals. and Yeah. 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 The other guy thing though, I mean, when I'm buying something, I always tell Lucy it's a lot cheaper than what it is. So I'm guessing you've just done it on a bigger scale. Bigger scale. Yeah, yeah exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Apart from yeah, it's my own money, that's a problem. <laughs> and, <I'm> like, yeah. <laughs> and it's it, that was an, another big stress, which I think gets overlooked sometimes, is that when you know stuff is going wrong, it's bad enough that it's going wrong. Like if you're on holiday somewhere and then you turn up to your hotel and your hotel is actually not even built yet. You think, that's not good. I spent the money, but we're here. So we'll book another hotel and get the money back later. And then maybe you get there and then maybe you get food poisoning or you have to go to hospital to pay for something and then your flight gets cancelled. And that's bad enough over a, like a week holiday. But if it happens so much, you start to get quite stressed about the fact that you've got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of wasted money. Yeah. And you are doing this thing for charity as well. So you think, well, I want to make sure that it's going to be worth it. You know, we're, yeah. we're doing this to raise money for Prostate Cancer UK. We want to make sure that we earn the, we get the money for the charity. And I, I knew that I was going to be spending more money potentially than that. And after a few months, we thought, well, let's just do it. And, and you start to get pretty kind of mentally run down by it, thinking, is this worth it? Mm. Um, but seeing every country in the world and experiencing it and the stories we've been talking about, it is obviously worth yeah. it. Yeah, but cool. um, it does get a bit scary at the you know financials when you're when you're away i suppose like with all those things that are going wrong from from your point of view, i don't know if you've read the book as well called the subtle art of not giving a fuck yeah Mark Manson. yeah with with those kind of things of where you'd usually have those everyday situations where you're still on a plug mm. you've lost your phone mm. you've lost your wallet those kind of situations or scenarios m must become like very insignificant once you have been through the magnitude of events that has unfolded over that period of time. And that's what I mean about me being a completely different person. My whole outlook on everything has just changed. And it's why I'm so, so much calmer. I'm still very highly strung is not the right phrase because I'm not an angry or aggressive person, but I'm highly strung in the sense that I want to achieve and I want to tick things off and I want to keep doing stuff but I'm going about it in such a different way than when I used to. I'm just much more relaxed. I'd rather just sit and look out at the sea and just the waves and be relaxed and, okay, if I've got this goal, then let it happen in the right time. I think patience, I think anybody that's travelled for a long period of time, they'll know that patience is mm. the yeah. thing that changes and I'm sure you're the same. So so that's that's definitely, definitely changed in me. I, yeah, I... 
I can't recognize the old me anymore. That's you know, it's really difficult to try and pinpoint what's different because I'm I'm not how I used to be. I used to be so stressed, I think. Just so constantly wanting to do stuff. And now I it's very, very hard because if you you know, if you interviewed Nikki, my girlfriend, or my parents, they'd say Nick is still pretty like intense with what he's doing. You know, I'm just just did twelve hours a day running around the country. That's yeah. intense. <laughs> but I'm so much calmer in myself. Uh, and when things happen, like even when I was on on um, running the world, I was up in a hot air balloon in Laos, overlooking the mountains. Uh, and I there was another couple of people in the balloon with me, and they were talking about like going out for dinner or something, and who they were going to pay for it or something. And then I was like, oh no, I left my card in the machine. And like my only debit card that I was traveling with was in a machine. And I was literally looking at where it was from the hot air balloon. I was like, I'm not going to get that back now. Oh, but because I'd had so many things happen to me at that point, I was just like, nah, it doesn't matter. And that's how I am now. You know, if the, yeah, the van breaks down, if yeah. something, exactly. You just, you're just so lucky. And that's now what I talk about a lot in schools and in theatres and I go to a corporate and, and do my talk. It's basically I stand up and just preach about how we're so lucky we really have no idea how good we've got it when things go wrong. Like when you break your phone screen or you, how angry and frustrated you get when that sort of stuff happens. And I still yeah. do that. Yeah. But fortunately, I try and catch myself and I go, no, you know what? We're, we're good. There's, there's two million kids in the world that are dying of starvation under the age of five every year. Two million. And we still get angry about not having stuff or things breaking or not being able to buffer something on Netflix or and when you've had that perspective it does make everything slightly less traumatic for yourself if that makes sense yeah I suppose when your bubble's only that small and people are living with inside these little bubbles every day and they've never experienced anything outside that those problems just seem so big but on the scale of things they're obviously so so small with what you related to one of the the other questions I suppose it's not as black and black and white as this from the from both runs, I suppose, and the, the trips that you've done, would yeah. you would you say that your faith was more so restored in humanity, or the opposing to that? No, definitely restored. People are more brilliant, more selfless, more loving, more kind than you can ever possibly imagine. And it gets me quite emotional thinking about it because the amount of times I've been in situations around the world, even recently, where people have just given so much when they have so little I mean I mean there's countless times and I could talk to you all day about them but there was one particular stall in uh, I think it was in uh, I can't remember where I was some Central American country and uh, the lady this stall I had no money I was running through and I'd ran out of water and I said I don't have any money do you have any water and I said I'll come back and I'll pay you later I, I promise I've got the money I'll just come back and she said don't worry water is life and she just gave me this water and this is a woman that makes her living out of selling bottled water from a little stall in the middle of nowhere in a country that was just hit by a massive hurricane and and I'm like okay and I just couldn't stop thinking about that and every time since so many things had happened where the people that have so little give so much and it really opens my mind to it that we can do more which is why we started the foundation ultimately and the the foundation was set up as a result of so it's called the one nine six foundation um and we aim to help causes all over the world to give a little bit back because we're just so lucky and i'm 
I feel kind of indebted to the world and the people of the world. I've stayed with people, put just insane, insanely kind people that you think, why are you doing this? Almost to the point that you think, am I being conned? Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. In those moments. And and then you look back and you go, they're just nice, like, really great people. So, very lucky. Gosh. Very, very well, lucky. It almost leaves you speechless, uh, doesn't it? It's... Because yeah. it's quite hard, I guess, for us to comprehend yeah. what you've done because we've not done it. But just listening to you, it is very emotional. There's a lot. Should go and do it. I'm ready. I'm... <laughs> Don't get us started. Don't get us started. No, I'm, I'm going to do an Ironman in a few years. I think that's okay. as far as I'll Brilliant. go. We'll, we'll, we'll do a marathon Kona. together. Yeah. We'll do a marathon I'll do a, together. Okay. You've had I can do that. Yeah, you've got to record it. You've got to record it, yeah. Was that a sub three hour marathon together, was it? <laughs> oh, yeah. There you what, go. What, what is your best time over a marathon? Not, not very quick. Two, 2.53.57. Not very quick. I'd well, say I feel like that's pretty, quick. But I, I have done nearly a thousand marathons yeah. and I haven't really ever trained for a marathon because I always do the longer stuff. So, And when I'm out in places all over the world, I'm not trying to run quickly because yeah. I'm trying to not get hit by cars. Or not <laughs> okay, get on, on the opposing, sort yeah. of in one stretch, what's the longest that you've... Uh, distance, it was three, just under 350 miles. 350 miles? Yeah, over three days. And that and was w- without sleep. So. Did you say you just didn't stop the whole way? No. Was that one? Did you not start hallucinating within that? Yeah, I did a lot of hallucinating that day too. Um, you get used to that though. Uh, and you know, the thing is with that kind of trip, you expect it. So you kind of like... Where was that? Uh, that was in, uh, in Ireland. Um, yeah. And it rained the whole time. Oh <laughs> so no, not maybe fun. not as nice. <laughs> no, it rained the whole time. Um, oh my I'd also done other, you know, longer, like 270 miles and things like that. But it's, it's not really, I don't know, there's marathon running, there's sprint running, and then there's the super, super long stuff running. And it's just not the same sport because you have to like learn to go through that phase of running through all of your carbs. You then run through all of your, your fat and as you know when you're in your fat burn stage it's yeah. not particularly fun and especially when you're going into it and you start to get used to it um but you then you're in a deficit you can't physically take in enough calories to then power you along and so that starts to get very very uh, degrading on your body and you start to hallucinate and then you start to kind of let your mind get the better of you so that's why i i, I like to run because it's a good test of the mind so what what kind of things did you were Fine when you hallucinating during that 350 miles. Then. I honestly can't remember what I was hallucinating about then. I've, I hallucinated about my only other memory of hallucination was a large umbrella, which sounds ridiculous. But I remember having this vision of a huge, huge umbrella that I could hold, but was like encompassing this whole. It was almost like a an out of body thing experience. Yeah. So there any kids watching who think about magic mushrooms, just go for a long run instead. Go for a long it's run, a, it's yeah. a much, much safer, <laughs> safer option. Uh, Not cheaper, though. <laughs> there's, there's a talk like when you're doing that long distance of the, the, the pain cave. Mm. What, what is kind of that, that fear and what... How, how's that, how did you feel that when, as you were yeah. running? There's no, one, there's no one thing. So some days... I mean, Run Britain is a good example of the real, like the hard hard times so sometimes you feel it all in your legs and your mind can't let go of the pain in your legs and I really start to beat myself up then mm-hmm. when I know that my mind could just overcome this and you think about all the podcasts I've listened to and all of the books I've read and all of the experience I've had and hundreds of different occasions where I've got through stuff and for some reason that day your mind can't let go of the pain that you're experiencing in your legs or your ankles or your feet or your shoulder like you get a knot in your shoulder mm-hmm. and it just bugs you for hours and hours and hours 
Um, so in terms of the pain cave, that's uh, the biggest struggle for me is when your brain just won't switch off some something that you wanted to switch off from. And for mm -hmm. me in Run Britain, it was my tibia. It was just desperately wanting to think about something else. And you have this concept of pain being a perception as opposed to an actual thing. So your brain controls all of your feelings. Mm -hmm. And so if you know that what you're feeling, let's say you give yourself a paper cut, for example, and your brain is going, that hurts, you can quite easily distract yourself and let your brain start to think about something else. So one way of doing that with running is that you'd put deep heat on another part of your body or an area so you then stop feeling that pain and your body starts to learn and overcome it. But it, when you do your, your deep heat on your, or you strap it or you try and freeze it all of the, and it still doesn't work, that's when it's really hard mm -hmm. because you know that your brain could do it, you're just not able to. And it feels like not only is your body letting you down because it's broken or damaged or sore, you're then your brain is kind of beating you up as well. So um, I get really in touch with my, my internal workings and you're very, very in your own head at that point. And running for 12 hours a day for four months is you're on your own. You're like, even if you've got people running with you, you're still having to manage your food and your pace and your all that sort of stuff and you you can't do that very well when you're not cognitively sound because <laughs> you're so tired mm -hmm. um yeah it's but having said that it gives me a lot of pleasure and fun and i can look back and have enjoyed it so. wow my mind um, is just blown it's just <laughs> incredible how the, the thing and i think the listeners will be thinking this as well because again a lot of the people and our members um, of the school and people listening have started doing a bit more running. Mm. How is it even fathomable to kind of build up from the position to doing from wherever you were when you really started running to yeah. then doing 350 miles? Because obviously there's this massive gap in between. And, yeah. and how how is that kind of how you have you got to that point yeah. where you're running that far? It's difficult to answer. I think the answer is to do more running to try and stay injury free for long enough to keep running and not get into a rut because a lot of people that I know that are brilliant runners most of them I'll have a chat on whatsapp or whatever I'll go oh yeah I'll give you a course here and they'll go oh, I've got an injury again and trying to stay injury free when you go from running short distances to long distances is very hard but if you can just have a little moment where you've got a few months or a year or two where you don't have a big injury then you're kind of on the on the up you can kind of get to that next level. It's like, an, I don't know, a video game. If you keep yeah. losing your yeah. lives and you have to keep going back down. But if you just get to a point where you can just get up to that next level, then you're there. You're never going to go back. Um, and for that, for me, was just doing lots of running, lots of competing, lots of my own trips. And that's why we finished running the world. We had this tour, COVID hit. I was trying to do all this other stuff. And we had a, an opportunity during lockdown one and lockdown two to go and run north to south of Italy. And I wanted to do 100 marathons in 100 days from the very north of Italy, zigzagging all the way down to the south of Italy, down to the south of Sicily. And the plan was to finish on Christmas Eve and then have Christmas Day in the Alps. So we're going to drive all the way back up. And we did it. And that was me desperately wanting to keep that level up because I'd just come from running the world. And I thought, if I don't do something soon, I might lose a life. You know, I might, <laughs> in, that, in that analogy of a, of a video game, I might just kind of go back down. I might not be quite as fit and... I might not have the same love of it. So we did that. And fortunately, I've just done Run Britain. So I need to keep keep the momentum going. Um, and I'm doing it now 
purely for myself, which I feel quite lucky about. Before you do things for some sponsors, you do mm-hmm. things for trying to like tick a big box and go, yeah, I did that. That's me, definitely a runner now. And sometimes you get out of that. And now I'm definitely in the, I know I can run and I'm enjoying doing it. So I suppose it's very basic advice for, and I say, I don't really think I'm very good at giving advice because I'm not, I don't do things as by the book. I'm not very good with my diet. <laughs> I always break my bones. But if you can, if you want to improve with, with running, I think the easiest thing to do is to run uh, consecutively for 30 days. And that sounds extreme, but run any distance. It could be like half a mile. The very act of just getting your shoes on and going out. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Yeah, just for 30 days. And and once you get to the end of that 30 days, you're not going to want to do just a mile or two miles. You're going to want to do more. And of course, it's the answer of, do I get up on day 31? Most people will go, yeah, yeah. probably yeah. should. And so since coming back from running Britain, um, I turned 32 at the end of August. And I said to myself, I was going to do a swim every day of, until I was 33. And so after speaking to you, I'm going to meet up with some friends and then I'm, I'm going to go... Uh, swimming and that's just because I want to start doing some swimming and it's like trying to live by my own example of I want to do more I want to try and get better at it so let's just do it for 30 days and I've come a little bit further I'm going to do it for a year Um, but that's not for anything else it's not something that I'm going to publicly like talk about it's not a challenge it's just my own want to do exactly you've got a great great swim teacher yeah yeah Yeah, I can teach you (laughs) to swim you can teach me to do marathons I need to learn learn how to tumble turn Yeah, I mean, just make sure you hold your breath. This Holding is your I breath. Tra- <laughs> when I tried to teach Ben to swim, Ben's kind oh, you of... Sink. You yeah. sink. Yeah. He, his, his bottom half of his body sinks. I'm and not a buoyant human being. You're not the most buoyant. And, but yeah, swimming is something that's amazing. I can say it's, that for being an ex-swimmer. Well, I'll do. take you up on that. You come and run a marathon. And yeah. I'll, uh, you do a YouTube video, that'll be quite cool. Yeah, that would be good. Oh, that would be good. Jump on YouTube, on my God, yeah. On the same day. Yeah. Yeah, swim. Can, what's the longest swim? Can you swim a marathon? Probably can. Yeah, you could swim a marathon, definitely. <laughs> Let's try that. Dive in, do that. Yeah. Mm, slowly. Yeah. Do you, I always find it interesting. And it, was, it was interesting after hearing Courtney do water and we interviewed uh, Harry Kins, who's the 100 meter run as well. A lot of the people at the top of the field, and I don't, not in a blase way, but with nutrition and training, mm. A lot of people go, I bet you they're mega dialed into the nutrition mm-hmm. and the training. And a lot of the time you find these people such as yourself are quite relaxed with it as well. Mm. Do you think you have to be? <laughs> I take that as a compliment of you. Yeah. <laughs> same, same grief as those. Um, I, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. I think it helps if you are definitely, without a doubt, scientifically, if you have better nutrition and you are very aware of it, and more importantly, if you have the internal knowledge, if you actually know what you're doing. So if you eat something, you know what stuff is in that and how it's going to affect your body. I think that's the very basics. If you know that, then you're on a plus and you can then try and enjoy it. But I don't have a very good diet, but I'm desperately trying to get better at it because I I want to be healthier because it's all very well being fit and being able to Mm -hmm. run hundreds of miles. But I could also be very unhealthy. Um, so just for myself, I want to be healthier. But in terms of competing and running and getting better, um, something I'm doing next year is I'm going to go back to a full vegan, gluten-free and uh, only whole food diet. And it's something that I'm excited about, but I'm actually really scared about because I don't know enough about it yet. Yeah, so I probably need to speak to you a lot and lots of others to try and <laughs> give, give me the info. But um, that's another, like we are just talking about, another little challenge for myself. Um, 
to answer the question, I, I don't really think you can be constantly on all the time in, with your diet as any athlete because you need to have a bit of flexibility in what you do. Um, otherwise, you just, you just learn to hate it, I think. Um, that said, there's a lot of brilliant athletes out there that have a diet that's a thousand times better than me and they are a thousand times better athletes. And so <laughs> I think there is a correlation there. So it's a, it's a balance, but you know, I'm not going to, I want to see, I want to go for this year of being vegan, gluten-free whole foods and see, and I can answer your question fully then of, you know what, it was worth it. Being so strict has meant this and maybe I'll come back and go, it wasn't worth it. Yeah. But we'll see. It's, it's difficult, yeah. isn't it? Again, I guess with experience as hell. Yeah. I think especially for probably you and then some of the other guests you spoke to, it's very situational as well because yeah. I'm speaking to Harry, one of the reasons why he has a McDonald's before he runs one of the yeah. biggest races in the yeah. world, 100 metres, one of the fastest guys on the planet, is again with sort of habit forming and stuff and yeah. he found that if he was going to a race and he was going to a country where he couldn't have that, I don't know, someone might have 200 grams of chicken, 100 grams of broccoli, yeah. if he couldn't have that, a lot of people would freak out about it because he could just grab a Mackey's or grab yeah. whatever from wherever psychologically he was he was okay with that yeah and that's when your psych your psychology and your physical stuff it has the balance doesn't mm -hmm. it if you're really on it but then like you say you turn up to a country and you can't get that food and psychologically that's going to really damage yeah. your Dressed. performance then it's not yeah. worth having that benefit of the better food so i agree yeah mm -hmm. it's a it's difficult to get that right speaking of stress how stressful is it for your partner mm. <laughs> she, yeah i think pretty stressful um, <laughs> mostly because she often puts a lot of her life on hold to support me it's not really stressful for, for her to, to see me running and in pain because she's used to it yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. really think she was, oh Nick she's like hurry up yeah. I want to like I want to be able to like <laughs> take the dog I need to go and have my fun because it's real life and when yeah. you live in a van together you do you travel everywhere together you're literally with each other all the time and we have our puppy and we have that responsibility and Nikki sacrifices so much to, to support me. And she did with Italy, especially. She was my only support running a marathon every day through Italy. She's never driven on the wrong side of the road before. And she went, and Italy's Stressful. a dodgy, yeah. dodgy country to run through, um, to, to drive through. And uh, in fact, the, the classic example of that was the last few days I was running double marathons because I had another fracture and uh, <laughs> I had to catch up. And we were running at stupid o'clock in the morning through these tunnels, pitch black. And it was two days before Christmas and we were desperately trying to finish. And Nikki was driving behind me because it was so dark. I couldn't see where I was going. So she had the headlights on and it was Christmas time. So she was playing Christmas music out the window <laughs> oh, I love um, that. as we were running up. And it's just that kind of thing is brilliant yeah, but support. she drove 15 hours on one of those days just supporting me on and so that's stressful but it's also you you have your arguments yeah but it's arguments that we that we know <laughs> <laughs> but it's like i'd much rather argue about yeah. oh can i yeah. stop driving behind you in a tunnel in italy you know rather than something else so um no i'm very lucky and my family are the same in the sense that they give up a lot to, to support me mm. be lucky, i was looking at that part on your website the van life yeah that must be very, that must be an experience in itself, just living that that lifestyle. Yeah, I love it. I'd recommend it to anybody. And I think even if somebody doesn't think they can live in a van, try it because you have any view you want anywhere. You've got accommodation for free anywhere you want to go. 
uh, and some of the places you can put up in front of, you know, multi-million pound homes on beautiful beaches and you're just parked in front of their view um, for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's quite cool. But now, I, I, yeah, we've been in it, what, two, two and a half years now? Um, virtually as soon as we got back from running the world, straight into, straight into the van. Um, my brother made the van for us. It's a That's brilliant amazing. van, really like luxury. You know, people think we live minimally, but we have. I've seen a, a bit of pictures of it. Yeah, exactly. yeah, fridge it's in the very nice. The dog it's gets like a van on steroids, lucky. basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but we're lucky. We're really lucky, and um, I wouldn't change it. I don't actually want to not live in a van anytime soon because it's too much freedom, too much opportunity to go different places and and. Yeah, I just can't stand being in one place. And that's, I think, probably born from running the world and yeah. constantly being on the move. Um, maybe I'll settle down a bit. Well, that was going to be my question because we mainly spoke to uh, Niall, British gymnast, last week about oh, this yes. in regards to the what's next and always chasing that kind of next mm. next hit. So do you find that it's a case of, I know you said before, you had been really looking forward to kind of this, this downtime, a bit yeah. of period to, to chill a little bit. But do you find you're always kind of going, I wonder what's in the diary next or what's mm. that next high that I'm I'm going to chase. And suppose for you, Nick, what, what is next? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, yeah, two things there. I guess when, so run Britain, running for so many hours every day, you can't not think about what happens after you finish yeah. because you're desperate to finish. You want to finish. And so you get there and you've made all of these plans, all of these ideas, all of these thoughts of, do I row an ocean? Do I climb a mountain? Do I run around the world? Like there's so many plans and yet there's five or six plans that we've got planned or in the planning and we have expeditions between now and 2025 that we've got booked in that we know we want to do but like I was saying earlier I'm more flexible with it and I want I want it for the right reasons mm-hmm. and yeah. if we have five things booked in bet- in those five years and we only get to do one of them then okay like I'm far more chilled about it um, but I can't ever take my eye off what's next because that's how I'm wired I just can't and so to answer the what next question is 2022 is going to be a bit different simply because I need to get fitter, believe it or not. I need to get fitter. <laughs> the man who ran the world. Right. Gonna, we, the rest of humanity has got no I, hope. I need to get fitter in the sense that you guys are fit. Like you, I need to get stronger. Okay. I need to understand how to get better mobility. I need to get healthier. I need to be faster. And so, so when I'm doing future trips, it's not taking me 12 hours to run two marathons. It's taking me nine hours. Mm-hmm. So then I can sleep for three more hours. Yeah. So that yeah. kind of stuff. I'm trying to use 22 as a bit of a consolidation year. And I've got a few, a few plans of and specific goals throughout the year that we're going to do to try and test myself with that. And I'll talk to you about that afterwards. Cool. Because we're not really sure yet and we're waiting on a few sponsors and bits and pieces. But it's going to be exciting. Yeah, it's going to be a bit different for me. We are still going to do one running challenge and that's probably going to be one of the ones I talked about earlier that we haven't done because of COVID. So Mm -hmm. likely north to south of New Zealand. And Nikki's even talking about maybe cycling it with me. So she cycles and I run. And we take the the dog in a buggy and that would be cool. But again, depending on COVID. So that's why we can't get too excited. Um, So that will happen. Um, And then we have a big big trip one of the biggest running things not the biggest running thing I'll ever do in 2024 um, what is that round Mars or something because how can you get much bigger than <laughs> well exactly world? well I can't say what it is yet but it's it's going to be more miles by a, a long way and it's ticking a lot of boxes and there's a big focus on the family time and um, a lot of the, the charity aspect as well so I'm very keen very very keen to 
get that one kind of nailed down. But, um, well, you have to let us know because we, yeah, obviously well. with COVID and stuff, we we do a lot of traveling around different places, and we'd mm. we'd love to be able to come out to one of the places where you're running in. Please do, yeah, yeah. Be, be able to to join yeah. it at some point. It can be the uh, the podcast of the journey. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, how exciting! Um, so, where can people find more about you, your mm. books, your foundation, things like that? Oh yeah, so easiest way is nickbutter.com just my website's got the whole stories of me and stuff like that if you're on um, YouTube the links will be on the YouTube channel as well yes. to find out more yes below that's what they yes. say on YouTube <laughs> yeah. in the description you nailed it <laughs> um, and uh, Instagram social media it's all Nick Butter Run so just see me on there and we post a lot of updates on there about what we've got going coming up so things like the theatre tours coming up so we're in theatres all over the UK and we're doing a Europe one doing a US one when we're allowed to go back. Um, and the foundation, so if I, can I, have I got time to talk about Oh, yeah, of course you. So the foundation, basically, the 196 Foundation, we named it after running the world, 196 countries, hence the 196. Very simple concept. We are asking individuals to donate £1.96 pence per month. You can't donate any more. You can't donate any less. It's the same for everybody, so everybody's equal. And then every year we count up all of our pennies, all of those little donations, and we put them into one pot and then we deliver one project per year. And that project can be on anything. So it could be somebody that you know that lives next door to you that needs a, a wheelchair, could be building a school in Uganda, could be an orphanage, could be a disabled boxing gym in Hackney, could be anything, anywhere. But the significance of the charity is that, and the special thing and the thing I'm proud about is that we've come up with this concept of it being a democratic donorship. So everybody that gives their money, everybody that donates has a vote on who we help. So every year, every April, we ask the donors to vote and then the winner receives our help. And it's all done completely not-for-profit. Nobody gets paid. We run the charity for about £1,000 a year and I just pay that out of my own pocket. And we... We do everything non-profit and it's helping through tiny, tiny amounts of money. Um, so it's less than £24 a year. Um, and we've got just under a 1,000 donors, I think, now. Um, but my aim is to have much more than that. So if you can afford £1.96, look on the website, the196foundation.com. Sign up to be a donor. Um, you can do it monthly or you can sign up for like three years' worth of donations. Um, and you get one vote for every month that you donate. And we'll email you in April to ask you who we... Who will support, and then we'll go and deliver oh, that's it. Incredible. Amazing. Yeah. We'll, we'll leave. We'll leave these links in again. Yeah. Um, the tour as well. Do you want to let? Oh yeah. People that yeah, is the kicking off tour, because yeah. we said we we're going to pop down to the one in in Warrington as well. Potentially, whatever's closest to Manchester will definitely. Yeah, there's a few coming up. Yeah, so starting in yeah, starting very soon, a couple of weeks. Um, less than that. It's coming around very quickly. <laughs> um, speaking tour. So I stand up for two and a half hours with an interval, fortunately, um, in theatres and lots of videos, stuff that we've been talking about, lots more stories, um, a few kind of other anecdotes of the philosophy and the, the hardships of the world to try and give a little bit of an impression of not just what the trip was like, but also the philosophy and how my mind's changed a little bit. Um, and lots of good photos. We've got the photo book coming out as well. Um, the Running the World book is also available and we'll be taking that on tour. And I'm also just started writing uh, Ron Britton book. So by the end of the speaking tour, we'll have another book out. Um, and I think we were going to tour from October all the way through to the end of the year, but lots of tickets are being sold and we think we're probably going to go up into March next year. Um, Amazing. Depending on uh, if my voice 
Last stands up because you can lose my voice quite a lot. But and also, if anyone's listening that's connected to a school, um, I love to go and speak in schools because kids just ask the most amazing questions, um, and they hopefully can be a, a little bit inspired by what I've done and maybe change a course of their life and and do something a bit more fun rather than just live. How yeah. many I'm sure they will be. I'm sure if anyone's listening, they'll be fully inspired. And this will just be a kind of snippet of of what's what's to come in in Nick's shows as well. Yeah. So if you're taking any away from the, in the podcast, definitely check out Nick's website and, and some of the tour dates that he's got going on because I'm sure you'll leave fully inspired. Yes. Yeah, so everybody who's watching on YouTube, oh, you can't see me on those cameras. <laughs> I was pointing at yours. Uh, make sure you subscribe, comment any questions. If you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, tag everyone so we can share and we just really really appreciate it Nick oh my god this was my I could say if another two hours and just probe you and Honestly, interrogate you further I've, I've come away so inspired it truly yeah. is really really incredible so we really really appreciate you coming yeah. on it means a lot thank you very much for having me on and I guess a big thank you which I think listeners will probably take for granted is that you guys give a platform to people like me to talk about this stuff so thank you to you guys as well Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, if, guys. If, you're not, if you've not watched this as well and you just listen, jump over onto YouTube. Do you know, I was, I, was, I was gazing into your eyes as you were kind of guiding us through the podcast. Do you know who, I was trying to think who you remind me of? David Gandhi. Who's that? I'll take that. He's like one of the best looking men on earth. There you go. Take that. Yeah. <laughs> take that. It's actually go, looking in the reflection. <laughs> <laughs> Well, make sure you jump over to the YouTube channel and check it out as well. And if you are sharing any stories, please tag me, Lucy and Nick as well, because we'd love to see your feedback. Bye, guys. Thanks, folks. Bye.